Greetings and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Great Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Jamie Mason. Jamie writes mystery suspense novels with uh, some clever premises in all three of the ones that we talk about, and has a couple of interesting secret talents that I didn't know about before the interview started. So I'll let you uh, hear that firsthand from her. Uh, but I had a great conversation with her. I've been wanting to get her on the show since the, the show started, actually. So uh, glad to have her on. And I think you're going to really enjoy hearing about her process and the cool books that uh, she's written. But uh, before we get to Jamie's interview, I do need to let you know that The Wrong Place or Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. Now, if that sounds like something you would like, you can check out their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's down and out books, all spelled out, .com, down and out books. Take the journey with us. And uh, speaking of down and out books, uh, as I mentioned in the previous episode, they have uh, just released the 27th episode of A Grifter's Song, Low White Plain by Paul J. Garth. It's a spooky kind of story, uh, more in a human evil sort of spookiness as opposed to supernatural. Uh, and uh, Paul just does a tremendous job. Check that out from Down and Out Books, Paul J. Garth's Low White Plain, episode 27 of A Grifter's Song. And if you don't know what A Grifter's Song is, please uh, head over to franksafiro.com and check it out because there's 26 previous episodes just waiting for you. All right, uh, let us uh, turn to the interview with Jimmy Mason and us uh, focusing on some of the interesting things that Jamie has to say, not only about her books and premise for these titles, a question that she asks herself when approaching a story, but also some of the superpowers that she has, a couple of them that uh, I did not know. So let's meet Jamie and find out about her and her work. Well, hey, Jamie, welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to see you. So you may not remember this, but uh, I first met you way back in 2013 or 14 at the Killer Nashville conference. Really? We met at Killer Nashville? Oh, no, I don't remember that. Well, yeah, I, I looked a lot different and, uh, and I don't <laughs> and we didn't talk. We didn't talk. But I just I, it must have been 2014. I had just retired. And I did what a lot of people do who have to wear their hair a certain way, whether in their career, I just let it grow forever. So I had ridiculously long hair and uh, probably wasn't very impressive. Um, but uh, but you were and uh, I went to one of your panels and and it was uh, great. So uh, I kind of took an interest in your work. And then uh, we've bumped into each other at quite a few of these uh, different conferences through the years. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's why I can never remember the first conference I met almost anybody because these circles have overlap and swirl and it's just crime writers are the most fun people. So I just, everything is a blur of happiness um, from almost everything that has to do with these conferences. <laughs> well, it's been kind of a long road up until very recently, a couple of years of a, of a dry mm -hmm. spell, I guess I should say. Um, I did see you down in Albuquerque for the most recent left coast crime, but I don't know about you, but that was my first conference in about two years. I, I did go to New England Crime Bank last fall. It's a it's a small um, conference done in Boston, and it's great. It's a really good one too. But it was a, it was it's a little bit smaller than Left Coast, and it was all masked and everything. And so we were able to 
that Albuquerque was definitely the first time I got to see everybody's faces again. And that was wonderful. Yeah. It takes some getting used to, uh, after being in hermit mode for, for two years, you know, but, I never uh, got sure. used to the mask thing. I, every time I went to the grocery store, I felt, I mean, I, I was supportive and I was cooperative, but it kind of freaked me out. I felt like I was in a, in a horror movie. Um, I never got used to not seeing people's faces. I didn't know I cared so much. It's odd too, because you, you tend to think that the eyes emote a, a, a great deal, but then you, you come to realize that uh, the rest of the face really, you know, accents that and, and supports that and gives you a complete picture of what the person is feeling and thinking. It's super interesting you say that because I have a superpower. Do you want to know what it is? Uh, of course. <laughs> I am what is called a super recognizer. So I had a friend who ran the psychology um, department or the psychology lab at Vanderbilt University. And what I learned from him was it was really hard to, to develop psychological studies. You know, the, these researchers need so much data and very often they have to junk it because they realize they did something wrong. So when legitimate uh, psychological surveys come out and I somehow hear of them, I always try to help out because it's really hard to get data. And I got some random thing asking me to test for uh, facial recognition. A couple of days later, I got an email that says, your test scores indicate you might be something uh, called a super recognizer. And my nonsense detector went off and I looked it up. <laughs> it was totally legit. And at this point now, I've been working with that university for years and I've gotten uh, at least two invitations, if not three, to submit a resume to Interpol in various uh, security firms because I'm really good at being able to tell if a photo of one person is the same person, you know, a photo of a different photo. And um, I realized the eyes were lousy for identification. And the, the best part for me, the where I go first, well, ears are great, but also the, the space between the, uh, the nose and the upper lip. Wow. So <laughs> it, would this include like, you know, here's a picture of 20-year-old Frank and here's a picture of 55-year-old Frank, you know, is exactly. it the same guy, that kind of thing? Yeah. yeah you, could, you could hunt down all the remaining Nazis. Well, it's funny because like my husband was asking me, how, how are you doing that? And I said, I don't know. I'm just answering the questions they're asking. Um, they tested me with people's faces. You know what I didn't like? Babies. After looking at hundreds and hundreds of photos of babies, I don't like babies anymore. They're, they all have dumb looks on their face and they're impossible. So, <laughs> okay, <yes>. Sheldon Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like uh, babies fine. Yeah, staring at babies. I, I did it with guitars. I did it with flowers. It was weird, but anyway. That's interesting. That's yeah, a, that is are, that is a superpower, though. Yeah, and the eyes are not good for identification. Yeah, they're good for emotion. I think mm -hmm. you know yeah. for for attitude, but uh, it makes sense that they they aren't going to be that different. Now, have you worked this into your books at all? You know, when I discovered this, I thought, oh, this is great. This could go. It's actually only interesting as a quick anecdote. I can't figure out how to make it useful in a story yet uh, because it's, although it's, you could have somebody who had that job, although now that I've been offered to apply for those kinds of jobs, all I could think of is how desperately boring it would be all day and it would kind of make me want to kill myself. So um, I, I, I have not yet figured out a way to work it in. Um, I'm sure somebody uh, more flexible than I am, they're welcome to it. <laughs> I didn't invent it, so. Yeah, I had I'd not heard of that actually. So that's that's pretty cool. 
I could I could really see the uh, application for it in, right. in a lot of different ways. Um, well, before we talk about your first book, I, I did want to ask you about one thing in your bio, and that is that you describe yourself as a veteran nomad. Now, I know what those words mean, but uh, what exactly does that term mean in the context uh, of your own biography? I guess a lot of people would be even more veteran at this than I am. Uh, and my father was a preacher and we moved around a lot. And so I, in, I've moved myself about 30 or 31 times in my life. And so 31 times. Yeah. So like so back I mean, up every box in the house, the bed in the back of the U-Haul type of move. Oh yeah. The whole works. And, and I am so wow. good at moving. My, my daughters are now 23 and 19 and you know, they're moving into dorms and apartments and everybody wants me to help them move because I'm really good at it. Um, and I like it. Um, I, you know, I get, so I've, we've been in this house now almost 10 years and that's, a, that's the longest I've ever been in one. And uh, I love my house, but I could totally move. Wow. My wife's a little bit like that. Not the moving part, but the change is exciting aspect to it. Like I'm a little bit more the other direction. I kind of like, I like the familiarity and the routine and the comfort of, of having been in a place, but I mean, we've only been here since 2016. So who knows? Um, So if somebody's listening and they're kind of shaking their head at like, wow, good at moving, what does that mean? Like what's, what's a really good tip that people, you know, never think of that would help make their move easier besides knowing somebody with a pickup truck. That's always helpful. Mine is more of a um, organizational thing. For one thing, um, you clean the place, you know, pull up the moving truck and then run the vacuum cleaner and clean everything as you put it in. Um, because then when you're done, you're done. But not everybody cares about that. Um, so it's, it's really more about setting up space. Um, that's what I'm good at. So I'd have to see the space. I mean, you know, packing and, and loading trucks. Like, I, I guess I never p- played Tetris, but instead I loaded moving trucks. And so I'm really, really good at that. You got your high score well, on that. Here's a good tip. Never throw away old bathroom rugs unless something dire has happened on that bathroom rug because they're great for moving. Just have wow. a stack of old bathroom rugs. They're awesome. There you go. Moving <laughs> tip from, uh, I mean, 31 times. I think expert is a word that we can use without uh, hyperbole here. Right. Well, you're also an expert at writing. Um, that's that's uh, ostensibly why you're on the show. Um, and you, you, you've had three books, um, and I would say you, you could definitely put them in the suspense category, correct? Or would you put them in a different yeah. category? No, that's that's where I put it. Because a lot of people talk about mysteries and, and procedurals and thrillers. And thriller is a very confusing one for me because for me, it always feels like thriller equals cut the blue wire. And I don't usually have cut the blue wire going on, you know. Um, so I, I think suspense, um, I usually write about the weirdest thing that ever happened to somebody. So that's usually where it goes. Yeah, I think suspense is a good fit, but it's always interesting to hear from the author themselves. Sometimes they they see themselves in, in a different way than, than I do. And so it's always good to ask. Um, mm-hmm. So your, your first book, Three Graves Full, this is a book that, I mean, it, it's kind of high concept in a way. Because the pre- in terms of the premise, because if anytime I've told anybody the premise, they're they're hooked. I mean, it's it's yeah. a really good hook, and and so I don't want to steal your thunder. Why don't you go ahead and, and share what that premise is? Well, the the premise was really fun for me because it, it was a lightning strike, and um, I, I just 
kind of have to stand around and waiting for lightning strikes. And this was really great. I was thinking about uh, a writing buddy of mine, a terrific novelist named Graham Cameron out of the UK, had given me a writing assignment that I was supposed to go to newspapers and find interesting headlines and then write a scene or a story that would result in that headline. But I was not supposed to read the article. And so the one I chose was Landscapers Find Skull in Mulch Bed. And what ended up occurring to me was that if landscapers found a, you know, a body on your property, what would be the worst thing about that? Now, of course, if you were a murderer, that would be bad. But I thought, what could make it worse? So in this case, uh, landscapers find a body on a property, and it's not the body the guy buried uh, about a year and a half earlier in his backyard. And so he has about 300 pages of problems after uh, a different body is discovered buried next to his house. <laughs> I really enjoyed the setup for this because this main character, he stresses for like a year, uh, 18 months, you know, uh, about I've got this body buried back at my property line, just inside the property line where it's safe. And oh my God, they're going to find it tomorrow. And then a little time goes by and he just as he starts getting like a little bit comfortable, if you can get comfortable with having a dead body buried in your backyard, this mm -hmm. happens, you know, and, right. and uh, uh, you wrote the scene really well, because the guy is, they come and tell him, you know, hey, you know, we found something and he's like, resigned to his fate, and they start walking him out there. And he basically almost walks into the back of the gardener, because the gardener is stopped next to the the flower bed where they found the dead body or the skull uh, and he was expecting him to go another you know 40 yards or something you know so it was, right. it was all it was kind of funny in a way you know well I, I love that you said that because um for me the book has a lot of dark humor jason the the protagonist is not a serial killer he's not a, a terrible person he he did a dramatically intense thing one time and i would leave it up to the reader to decide how they feel about that but um, he just gets himself into sort of a ridiculous situation. And there's something inherently darkly funny about a lot of it for me. Um, and so I'm glad you find that funny because I thought it was kind of funny too, in a horrible sort of way. Well, I was a cop for 20 years. So, you know, gallows oh, right. humor, definitely. Uh, I pick up on it and, and enjoy it. I think it's funny. Um, well, I'm also but, one of those people who cracks up when I bang my knee on the bedpost or something. I don't know why. <laughs> well, I do want to circle back to Three Graves Full because I uh, okay. to touch on a conversation we had at uh, at uh, Left Coast Crime recently. Um, but uh, it probably applies to all three of your books. So maybe we'll soldier on here to the second book, cool. Monday's Lie. And this is interesting to me because it's a story about somebody discovering that everything is not as they thought it was and and those kind of lives getting upset and and realities and perceptions being shattered i i dig that so um so what's going on in monday's lie so in monday's lie um i very very loosely inspired by the idea of uh the, this will date me but the um the valerie plame case and she now she's a crime writer um but she was uh outed as an important spy. And she actually was a suburban, what she looked like was a suburban wife and mom. And so I thought that was an interesting setup. Not that my main character has that, her mother had that setup. So this is the daughter of a woman who was a suburbanite operative and she hated it. You know, she didn't know much about her mom's work. Um, but when her life, when Dee's life starts falling apart, she relies on 
what she knew of her mother and the spy games her mother used to play with her and her brother when they were kids to figure out what is going on in her own life. And so uh, that was really fun. And it was also interesting because one of the main characters is the mom, but the mom has been dead for three years. So she's only a character in memory. And um, that ended up being incredibly rewarding to write. And it was a lot of fun. Well, and her husband is considering a, a change in life or, or a change in relationship. At least that's what she thinks. Um, is that somewhat the catalyst uh, for, for what takes off in this, this uh, realization that, you know, things aren't the way I thought they were with him? Yeah, kind of the catalyst is that she she wanted the most normal life she could have, you know, just the most, you know, the, the, the spark and crackle of her mother's life with the veneer of white picket fence uh, was kind of abhorrent to her. She wanted the real white picket fence. So basically the catalyst is when she can no longer deny that things are not, not as she so carefully chose them to be. And so, um, yeah, it's like that. We cling to our illusions, don't we? We we, we find them comfortable and absolutely, absolutely. And so it, it was interesting to to reconcile her relationship with her mother years after the fact, and how that helps her actually unravel the mystery and figure out what's going on in her own life, and uh, at least pre- prevent personal disaster. Well, now you've had a male protagonist, uh, Jason, and then uh, th- this one has a female protagonist. Um, so the rubber match in protagonist uh, competition uh, <laughs> goes to the fairer gender uh, because <laughs> in The Hidden Things, um, your protagonist, your main character is is, is Carly. Uh, once again, you you have a very uh, hook-worthy uh, <laughs> setup, uh, for lack of a better term, in that uh, here's here's a young woman who is attacked inside uh, her front door. The, a video of it goes viral. Yeah. So in the hidden things, um, there were two catalysts for me on that. That the idea I'd, I'd actually seen a video that was similar to the one I described, not quite as swashbuckling as what I have uh, done. But when I saw it, you know, it was terrifying. A, a young girl comes home from school and gets attacked in the foyer of her home. And, you know, in the, in the end, everything in, in that clip comes out fine, or she gets away, let's say that. Nothing truly awful uh, happens. But I was really curious, why did they have a f- camera in the foyer? <laughs> it seemed like a weird thing to do. Like, outside the house, I understood, but having a camera always filming your foyer was kind of interesting. Uh, now, that was years ago. Maybe it's more common now. And so the thought occurred to me, what could be a weird reason you would have a secret camera in your foyer? And so that was one idea. And um, and I kind of wondered what a young woman, 14 years old, really a girl, if you saw, sometimes we do amazing things, right? We get in a bad situation and we get out of it, but we only see it from the inside out. If you saw yourself do something better than you thought you could do, especially at such a formative age, what might it, it embolden you to do? And so part of that is, is Carly's, um, really coming to terms with saying that she's better than she knew she was. But the problem is that her stepfather has something very priceless in the foyer that nobody realized. And he's been uh, on the run for some time, you know, trying to hide the secret. And so um, that's what causes all the problems. It's interesting. You, a lot of writers will ask themselves, what would happen if, and, and a lot of stories come about from that question. But you tend to focus on a different question. Uh, what is it that you usually ask? Well, 
think the thing that usually comes to is is why, like I imagine a scenario and why would, what what series of whys would land somebody in this predicament? Because why for me is, I, I, I saw somebody recently said this, they write why done it's more than who done it's. And I appreciate that more than one pe- person could come up with that. But I said that a long time ago. <laughs> Uh, so why for me is the really interesting part. And I think why gets people into more trouble than practically anything else. What do you mean by that? I think many of us lead unexamined lives. And for one thing, I think that shrinks your life uh, a lot. But when you examine why you do things, uh, and especially in the context of fiction, you really can stretch your empathy muscles um, and feel, you know, feel like you understand how somebody could do this or that terrible thing or an unwise thing or a heroic thing. And so I've always found that really interesting. When I come up with an idea for a scenario, immediately the why uh, starts starts pulling at me because I think that's where you get the most interesting conversations. I think, uh, you know, I don't write moralistically, like I don't want anybody necessarily to have a lesson, but I do think all reading especially fiction, uh, is a safe place to stretch our empathy muscles and our, um, our powers of understanding just for exercise uh, at, you know, in, in advance of the time that you're going to need to uh, understand your own self. And if you don't examine your own whys, uh, your life is unnecessarily small. Wow, that's a tremendous answer. <laughs> and and it, it highlights a couple of interesting things to me. Uh, one being that different authors are going to attack stories differently. I mean, I, I think some people, why is their secondary or even tertiary concern? You know, it's like, you know, what happened and how did they do it is, is where a lot of people go. And so, I mean, everybody's got a different approach, but you know, the, the way that you frame that with the idea of asking why in your own life, and then extending that to other people's lives, uh, I think that's tremendous because it would go such a long way to solving conflict. I mean, if, if instead of me focusing on what you did and how that makes me feel and why I'm angry about it or hurt or whatever the reaction is that's causing, or at least adding to the conflict between us, if I ask why you did it, then I'm going to get a lot closer to understanding more quickly uh, and And vice versa understanding is an incredible balm to hurt. It doesn't fix everything. It can't fix mm-hmm. everything. But there was an old quiz about, you were supposed to give your kids, uh, what does what does mom always say? And both of my kids said a version of she, that she hates stuff that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I can make sense of something, it goes a long way to being able to process it to either unpack it and get rid of it or or uh, unpack it and keep it. And so that doesn't excuse anyone from rectifying wrongs or you know, suffering consequences, but it certainly helps the world make a little bit more sense. And then you can take some of that sense with you. And Lord, we know we could need some sense. <laughs> well, and if we don't ask why and, and actually try to determine objectively or at least subjectively from the person, you know, what the answer to that is, you know, why in their mind, uh, we tend to fill in our own whys. And mm-hmm. as a species, we don't tend to fill in ones that are very pleasant. We always tend to go pessimistic, you know, oh, Jamie did that, said that to me because she's mean or she doesn't like me instead of 
you know, she was distracted or I misunderstood, you know, and, and we tend not to reverse it. Like if somebody assumed yeah. our motivations, we would be yeah. outraged. We wouldn't like that. No, that's not why I did that. Um, and that assigning motives to people, it, it, it's really funny. We don't turn it around enough. Mm-hmm. I think I read recently, yeah, we, that we judge ourselves on our intent and other people on their results. And, yeah. and that's, <laughs> right. that was, you know, that's, yeah, that's, so when we spoke in Albuquerque at Left Coast Crime, one of the things that we uh, touched on was I had been listening to the audio version of Three Graves Full, which is really well performed. Um, but one of the things that that we kind of batted back and forth was that your particular style of prose, the way that you put words together, doesn't seem to translate to the audio uh, format, to the audio medium quite as well as as some other works do it seems like it's more effective when taken in visually and with that internal voice uh, am i out of line by saying that or not in my opinion I, i'm not really an audiobook person and, and i think i write not on purpose but it's interesting that i was never uh an audiobook person i, I think it's great that people are i don't have anything against it but I realized with the way that I wrote, um, I love language and I like trying to say things in interesting ways because I like the rhythm of things, but it's not, it's not audiobook cadence for the most part. Now, I was really excited to hear um, Three Graceful, um, the voice actor, um, the cadence is on the page. So I was really happy to find that out. And the only way you can find it out is to have a stranger read it. So that was exciting. But the type of writing, yeah, I'm not sure it lends itself to audiobooks as much as um, as much as other books. Um, so it's uh, I don't know exactly why that is, but I did notice that myself because there have been audiobooks I enjoyed, but uh, mine are a little bit more difficult. I think um, you have to sit with the sentences a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's a measured read, I think, um, rather than a casual one. Uh, it would translate well to the screen. Um, that's be- for sure. <laughs> Uh, so what's n- got tantalizingly close, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, well, that's good to hear. I think that would uh, just would translate really well. Um, it might come around again. We'll see what happens. Well, it's it's on on pause for now, but it was uh, it was tantalizingly co- close and quite a lot of fun to talk about. Well, what's next on the agenda? What's is there is there a book in the works? There is. I'm super slow, and COVID did nothing. It really got in my head, um, and so. Uh, it was very difficult to write, but I seem to be coming out, crawling out of my cave. And um, I'm writing a story about uh, a young young woman uh, who goes to a bridge in her hometown when she finds out it's gonna be destroyed because um, on the night of her high school prom, she had a disaster. She walked home on her own and encountered a jumper on the bridge. And so this teenage girl talked a grown man off a bridge and it changed her life. And when she finds out years later that uh, the bridge is going to be destroyed, she comes back to her hometown just to sort of pay homage to this place that really changed things for her. And she meets a, a, a woman a little older than her on the bridge who is coming there to memorialize her husband um, who did jump off the bridge. And they realize they're talking about the same guy. So one woman absolutely knows he didn't do it. And one woman absolutely knows he did. Oh, wow. I, that's awesome. I mean, uh, I don't know if you're going with like uh, the potential for d- dimensional shifts or anything, if it's supernatural in that regard or, or perception. It's not, but it's, 
No, they, that would be fun. I, I someday, if I get a little better established, I would love to write. Um, I'd love to write a horror novel someday. I, I don't. I don't have any. I don't have any plans for it, but um, I can get a kick out of those. If I could think of a good something that I can believe, because the why mostly mm. all haunted house stories. Why would you stay in the house? You leave. So yeah. you need like you need like a poltergeist. You can't leave because Carol Ann's still in the house. You know? So if I can <laughs> if I can come up with one of those, um, I'm all in. <laughs> well, you're you're a half step toward it already with your suspense, no question. So work well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, folks, the author is Jamie Mason. Uh, three books so far, Three Graceful, her uh, excellent debut novel, followed by Monday's Lie and The Hidden Things. If you want suspense, if you want to delve into the why, these books are definitely for you. Uh, and uh, Jamie, it's been a long time coming to have you on the podcast, and I'm uh, really glad we got to. I love it. Thank you so much for the invitation. I've really enjoyed it. All right, folks, there you go. A Jamie Mason, well worth the wait. Uh, and uh, just some uh, really cool ideas for setting up her books, I thought. And uh, being a super recognizer, I'd never heard of that before. It is super cool. And uh, I really liked her philosophical approach to uh, storytelling. All right. On the next episode of Wrong Place or Right Crime, we're going to meet Jeffrey Hess. Jeffrey writes hard-boiled noir and also has a, uh, a veterans project that I think is pretty cool that uh, I think you're going to want to hear about. So that'll be next episode on Wrong Place or Right Crime, Jeffrey Hess. Quick Zafiro update for you. The 509 Crime Anthology Backroad Bobby and His Friends, edited by Colin Conway, has been out for a few weeks now. I have a story in there called The Escape of Jimmy the Saint. It's a pretty star-studded lineup, some great stories. If you like uh, stories that center around travel and cars and crime or any combination thereof, this is a great anthology for you. Check that out. Backroad Bobby and his friends. Uh, also, uh, the day before this episode dropped, I released a new book called A Baker's Divorce under my real name, Frank Scalise. And uh, this is about an aging rocker named Cal Baker, who had a big hit when he was 19. He's had some minor hits since then, very minor hits. He's chased every musical trend that's come along, usually behind the curve. Uh, and also along the way, he's been married and divorced 12 times. Now his 13th wife has told him she wants a divorce, making it a baker's dozen of divorces for Cal Baker. And this news sends him on a quest to figure out why does this always happen to me? <laughs> Which, just given the facts I've already shared with you, should sort of give you an idea of where his mindset is and how oblivious he is to some parts of his own nature. So if Billy Mac from Love actually went on a high-fidelity sort of journey in a Jonathan Tropper sort of world, you, you, you might be in that right corner for, for this novel. Anyway, Baker's Divorce, this is now available so if you like humor and drama, check it out. All right, I want to say a thank you to Jamie for coming on the show and to Down and Out Books for sponsoring the show. And most of all, I want to say thanks to you, the listener, for being here and checking out the show. If Jamie's work sounds interesting to you, uh, please take a look at it. Support her any way you can. I know she'll appreciate it, and I certainly will too. We're going to talk to uh, Jeffrey Hess in the next episode. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you, 
that sometimes you gotta be in the wrong place to rate crime. <laughs>